Hi, and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month, I'm talking to lawyer Lucy McCormick about her first book on the law of driverless cars, Google Tesla crashes, and much, much more. Support this podcast on Patreon and find us at machine-ethics.net. Enjoy. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, Could you just give us a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Yes, well, hello. Uh, My name is Lucy McCormick, and I am a barrister specialising in product liability, and I work from Henderson Chambers. I have a particular interest in driverless cars um, and other kinds of technology as well, but mostly driverless cars. And I'm very excited because I've recently been commissioned to write the very first book on uh, the law and driverless cars. Brilliant. Um, So... Uh, what brought you to this topic, I guess? What, what, what prompted you to start looking into driverless cars or autonomy in law uh, specifically? Well, most barristers start out by doing a lot of road traffic accident litigation, and I was no, um, no different there. So after having done 100, 200 road traffic accident trials, and you, you have the odd trial where the technology makes a bit of difference and people say... Um, Oh, but there couldn't have been an accident because it would have beeped if, if there was going to be an accident. And most of the time, the people just didn't hear the beep or didn't pay attention to it. Yeah. But it's, it just got me thinking about it, and I thought this is a really, really interesting area of law. It's just starting off, and I, I want to be there when it blows up into being the massive thing it's clearly going to be. And so it's been such an exciting time, because I got into it before um, the Google crash, before the Tesla crash. And obviously, the Tesla crash in particular is very sad for the people involved, but legally it's so interesting yeah so you mentioned those two crashes there um, mm. for anyone who hasn't actually um, seen the news because um, obviously we, those things come up um, and um, strike us when we see them in the newspaper but for anyone who hasn't seen um, we have the tesla cars which also which have this autopilot software within them mm. so some of the time people can be handless while driving so that the car is kind of steering itself and then the, obviously the Google cars are completely autonomous, right? Yes, that's, that's right. And so in a way, they're philosophically the two different ways of approaching driverless cars. Do you build a driverless car from the ground up and design it to always be driverless and to be fully driverless? Or do you go, which is the Google model, or do you go the Tesla route and say, well, I'm going to sell you a normal, albeit quite premium car, and I'm gradually going to update it with little bits of technology that you can choose to download that make it more and more intelligent and more able to handle itself. Yeah, and it does that automatically. Yeah, well, actually, with the Tesla car, you can choose to download the autopilot feature. Um, the only Tesla driver that I know has chosen not to download it, which I think in retrospect might have been a good idea. But um, no, and it's explicitly in beta. And as a software designer, you'll be much more aware of what that means than me. But yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's 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 already an interesting point because. What other features do you have in cars which are in beta? None whatsoever. And I think the the other car designers working on driverless tech are probably a little bit frustrated with Tesla because Tesla has just crashed ahead. Literally. This, yeah, <laughs> literally. And, and put this technology into cars when really if they, they'd held back until the technology was just that little bit more tested and that little bit better than the press, the press and the media attention would have been better for the industry as a whole. And um, although actually there have been some surveys that have said that the Tesla crash hasn't really affected consumer confidence in driverless technology, um, not as much as you might might have thought. But it's an area where the, the sheer PR of driverless cars is really, really interesting. And 
So Volvo, in particular, have recently been making a lot of statements about strict liability. And what that means is they're saying, Mm -hmm. if our car did it, then we'll take responsibility. Mm. Now, that might sound quite a wide statement, and that's because it is, and there's lots of scope for carping about at the edges and working out whether they really mean we'll always take liability or whether there are exceptions. But that's the mood music that they're putting out about their product, is don't worry, we've got you. And they're Mm -hmm. taking this very... They're trying to present themselves as extremely responsible. And, um, And equally, Google Cars are doing a very similar bit of PR... Uh, so the Google crash was the happened on the 14th of February of this year, so on Valentine's Day. And it was the first, it's generally believed to be the first crash uh, of any driverless car. And what's quite interesting about this, and I think we might come back to this mm. later, but what's really interesting about the crash is that it's not necessarily the car's fault. It may well have been the other vehicle's fault, which, which was a bus. Um, but Google decided effectively to accept full responsibility for that. And I think that was a very clever move for them sort of politically because they're sending this message out, don't worry, we're responsible car makers, we'll accept responsibility. We're not going to you know, be, be really difficult about was it your fault or was it our fault? And I think to legislators that's a really reassuring message. But actually if you look at the mechanics of the crash, it could easily have been the bus's fault. But... I mean, the conspiracy theory in the industry is that Google said, actually, this is a great first crash. Let's run with it. It's at two miles an hour. The crash happened at two miles an hour. Nobody was injured. The damage was barely visible to either of the vehicles. Uh, I don't think there was necessarily any damage to the bus at all, and the damage to the car was tiny. So I think Google said, you know what, that's a great first crash. For the PR, there's always going to be a first crash. Let's run with that. Great. So if they're going to crash, we crash really lightly <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly um so i guess um if we kind of wind it back a little yeah, bit yeah sorry um all that was um like obviously fascinating um when people talk about ai and and when you are talking about um, ai um to your um colleagues what are you actually talking about i mean what does uh, artificial intelligence mean to you well, as a lawyer, I think my answer is inevitably going to be less technical um, than perhaps yours, and certainly uh, Nick Reed of the Transport Research Laboratory, who I know you had um, on this podcast earlier. But essentially, it's just very complicated software, and I don't think it's reaching any kind of true artificial independent intelligence anytime soon. And, and, um, and so I really just see it as a, a very evolving process. And particularly applied to cars, because um, the first bit of what you might call artificial intelligence in cars came along in the 1950s, and that was cruise control. Mm, Then in the 1990s, you get adaptive cruise control, which is where the cruise control doesn't just go at 70, but it keeps a set distance from the car ahead of you. And then by the 2000s, you start adding in little extra features like uh, lane-keeping assistance, where you're not just... Um, keeping the distance from the car ahead of you, but it's stopping you wobble, wobbling within your lane. And then right up to the present day, so earlier this year, a Mercedes E-Class was launched, uh, which is not just capable of the cruise control and the lane keeping and the blind spot spotting, but it can automatically overtake. And so I think artificial intelligence to me is an incredibly cumulative process, and it's just going to keep, um, keep moving forward until we get to full automation. One thing that, that I thought might be useful to set out mm. at this point is 
what are called the stages of automation. I'm sure you're already familiar with these. But, and some different people describe them slightly differently. But the stages of automation in cars go mm. from zero to four. And zero is no automation whatsoever. Who, yeah. Can I just be there? Who set out these stages of automation? Uh, this is the National Highway Authority in the US. Right. It doesn't have any legal status in the UK, um, although it's been widely cited in UK consultation yeah. documents. And it, it, it's considered a very, very useful shorthand to explain. Mm. I mean, we talk about driverless cars, we talk about automated vehicles. What do we actually mean by that? They're so kind of categories in, in a way to explain um, that particular vehicle and, that, and the capacity of that vehicle. Yeah, and where it fits in. So, yeah. so zero is no automa automated mm -hmm. technology. Um, number one, uh, stage one is, say, cruise control, just one bit of technology. Stage two is when you get two bits of assistive technology working together. So cruise control plus lane assist, for example. And then three, stage three is when you get limited automation, where the car can quite happily drive itself most of the time, but when it gets to a really difficult situation, you know, driving down Oxford Street or something, it says, work, this is a bit too much for me, I want my driver to take back control. Mm. And that's more or less the level the technology has hit at the moment. And then level four is fully driverless cars, where really there could be no one in, in the car at all, there could be a child, there could be a blind person, and the car would be able to absolutely do everything and drive itself. And, and we're some way away from that. And pundits mm. put the point we'll get there as about 2025, might be a bit optimistic, maybe 2030. Yeah, and that's kind of like a vehicle without any um, apparatus to drive it, right? So there's no steering wheel, there's no pedals or anything like that. It's almost... Certainly it could be. Um, yeah. As a marketing, from a marketing perspective, I suspect fully driverless cars will come with the option to drive it yourself right. um, in, the, in the medium term because people still enjoy driving. I know I enjoy driving. Mm. And I think where these, these driverless cars have real potential is you're stuck on the M25 um, or imagine your own nearby very horrible road and it stops start traffic you're never getting above 20 miles an hour mm -hmm. that's just boring and it's not just boring it's dangerous because the chances of you going into the back of the car in front of you not very fast but the chances of you just losing attention and doing mm -hmm. that is quite high yeah nobody mm -hmm. likes driving that jeremy clarkson doesn't like driving that and, and taking that out of the driving experience i think is a very easy sell but quite a lot of people myself included will always want to be driving those, you know, beautiful Italian mountain roads or the test tracks. Mm. Um, but it'll take that really dull traffic and commuter driving out of the equation. Um, and that's why I think that fully driverless cars with no steering wheel or whatever, they're a long way down the road because people will always want to drive themselves sometimes. Let's presume. Mm. Yeah. Because um, I, I would say that... Uh, just driving around Bristol yesterday, mm. uh, where I live, um, there was some really bad, bad <laughs> driving going on. Yeah. Um, hopefully not for myself. But, um, so you've, we've got this kind of um, almost five different levels mm. from zero um, of automation for vehicles. Um, how is this kind of explained in law? Is there any um, cases that have been 
actually tested against these uh, manufacturers so far? Well, actually, no, um, because we haven't had a driverless car crash in this country. So it's all new law. But the government is trying to legislate for it because it's going to happen and it's going to happen very soon. Mm -hmm. Um, What I think might be quite useful is if I talk you through where we are legally in the UK at the moment. So you can say a lot about this government, but it's been very, very on the ball when it comes to driverless cars and the legislation about that. Um, And for most purposes, this process kicked off in February last year when the government issued a document called the Pathway to Driverless Cars. And that was essentially a review of all the law in the UK at present and said, well, where are we at the moment? And that came to the slightly surprising view that real-world testing of automated technology is possible in the UK today, provided a test driver is present and takes responsibility. Mm. Now, that puts the UK in a very unusual position, um, because in a lot of countries, you would need to make legislation to make it legal to have a driverless car. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, it's already legal. And that gives us a massive head start in what's going to be a a very, very lucrative industry. So what you're saying is, I could have a a test... A vehicle that I needed to test, mm. and as long as I was prepared to take responsibility for that vehicle, I could go and use it now. Yes, Amazing. absolutely. Now, obviously, the government has engaged with this slightly further, and so in July last year, it issued a code of practice for the testing of driverless cars. Now, that doesn't have any legal status, it's not a law, it's not a regulation. Mm. But then neither is the highway code, and if you break that, you'll be in real trouble if someone does sue you. Mm. So there's this distinction between something being officially a law and not doing something being negligence. And that code of practice is quite short and it's quite readable. And if you're interested, I I suggest you you do go and look it up. Um, Because what it recommends, and these are very strong recommendations, and if you break them, you're going to be in trouble, is, first of all, that you probably ought to have done some prior testing on closed roads. Sensible enough. Mm -hmm. Secondly, as we've discussed, that you have to have a driver present. Thirdly, that you have to have a clear way of switching between manual mode and automatic mode. And you need to be able to take back control very, very quickly. And the car, fourthly, it has to have a black box of some kind to record if it does all go horribly wrong, so lessons can be learnt. And uh, finally, and this is my absolute favourite bit about the code of practice, is it warns test drivers that they have to be conscious of their appearance when they're driving the cars and they must maintain normal gaze direction because people are going to be incredibly wigged out if they see this car going along with someone reading a book. It's just not something we're used to on the roads. And and if you're a cyclist, for example, you you rely on making eye contact with drivers and seeing where they're looking to see if they've spotted you. So... It's just, it's a very pragmatic bit of advice, but it's also just quite funny, maintain normal gaze direction. I absolutely love that. So anyway, we've, where we've got to in this year is we're in a sort of consultation and reform phase. And the next real development was in May, which was mm. the Queen's speech. And the Queen, in her speech, having got to, the, um, uh, got to Parliament in a golden carriage drawn by horses, she announced the... Modern Transport Bill, which provides for spaceports, uh, drone flights, and the world's first driverless car insurance law. So, really, pretty, pretty incongruous there. And um, <laughs> she's quite forward-thinking, I think, exactly. isn't she? Yeah. Well done, the Queen. Yeah. 
and very forward thinking indeed, because this bit of legislation has been expressed to be, and I think this is correct, to be the world's very first driverless car insurance legislation. But at the moment, all they've really done is announced it. They haven't set out mm. exactly what's going to be in it. We know roughly what's going to be in it because the roads minister's given a few speeches. And he, and what it's really trying to grapple with is this problem that, at the moment, we all have compulsory motor insurance as individuals. Yeah. Yet, on the other hand, in a world where all driverless cars are fully automated, that wouldn't be necessary, and you just have product liability. Yeah. But we're going to enter this slightly messy phase shortly where there's a mixture of very highly automated cars, completely automated cars, and normal cars, whether that be because you've got a lovely classic Aston Martin or whether it's just because you can only afford a battered Ford Fiesta. There's going to be a very long period of overlap between the mm. two. The way it expects to deal with this problem is to make the compulsory individual road uh, traffic insurance that we all have and force it to cover product liability, so force it to cover the technology going wrong. Because right. previously it wasn't quite clear that it would necessarily do that. Right. And then, so your insurer will have to pay out to you if you're involved in a crash because of the technology in your car. But your yeah. insurer can then go off and chase the um, chase the manufacturer. You know, let's let's imagine it's Tesla. They can go mm. and chase Tesla, but then Tesla can then. If they want, they can go and sue the person who actually made the, made the bit of tech, the subcontractor. Right, I see. Which is often the case. So, in a lot of uh, a lot of these cars, um, the te- the real driverless technology isn't made by the the mark on the on the bonnet. Mm. It's often made by overwhelmingly Bosch, actually, um, the people who make washing machines. That's uh, that's that's strange because yeah. obviously it's a mix of technologies put into a vehicle, and, and the vehicle yeah. might from a different manufacturer itself mm. as well like yeah. especially with the Google cars I'm yeah. pretty sure they don't have their own car manufacturing um, so so it's mm. all about the liability chain at that point exactly exactly so yeah. so at the moment we're in this consultation phase of trying to work out what the modern transport bill uh, ought to have in it and um, so it, it's going to be dealing with the insurance it's at the same time they're also looking at the highway code because the highway code needs a bit of a, a tweak and a bit of an update to reflect driverless cars. Because, um, I mean, there, there are many aspects of it that, that could be brought up to date. But the most obvious is Section uh, 150 of the highway code, which I'm sure you all know off by heart. But it's the one about making sure you're not distracted by sat-navs and whatnot while you're driving. Right. And it specifically says, um, don't rely on cruise control and that sort of technology. And that's spot on, and that's exactly... So it, it's correct as far as it goes, but I think they're looking at beefing mm. it up to deal with a little, a little bit more detail, these kind of advanced assistive technologies. Yeah. And the, the other thing they're going to change, which I, I just think is fascinating, is there's a provision in the Highway Code, uh, I'm not sure exactly which number it is, but it's the one that, may, that provides for the two-second rule between vehicles, because you're supposed to leave a two-second space between you and another car, just for safety, for obvious reasons. But one of the developments of driverless cars at the moment is about connecting driverless vehicles to one another and allowing them to platoon as a giant caterpillar down the motorway, with one car driving for all of them. And in that case, you want them all really absolutely lined up incredibly closely behind one another. So, And that's called platooning. Mm. 
And so they're looking at reforming the two-second rule to say, if you're a load of trucks driving in a row uh, on a very long journey, platooning, then you don't have to observe the two-second rule. Right. So it, it's all very exciting times. Yeah, I mean, that's it's fascinating because it's gone from uh, isn't driverless cars an interesting idea to legislating for it and, and, yeah. and putting together these kind of uh, rule-by-thumb codes and amending the highway code and all this sort of stuff. So they've someone's obviously decided that this is going to happen and we've seen um, over the last two years it happening, mm. I guess. And then we've got people like uh, Nick and um, TFLTL. T Transport Research TRL yeah TRL. Transport Research Laboratory um, who are already testing it and they're doing their stuff in, in Greenwich and I've and there's some stuff going on in Bristol, Cambridge and other places and and there's these test beds of vehicles so it it, it could be very very quickly that we see these things mm. um, obviously on our roads rather than yes you know sh- not shrouded but you know being tested I guess mm-hmm. um, which is hugely interesting and I think. It kind of rounds us back to what does happen with things like the Tesla incident and, and things that when when things do happen, is that uh, is that a concern in law? I mean, it's concerned ethically, right? It's... Yeah, obviously it's a concern ethically, and I won't rehash the trolley problem because I know sure. you've already discussed that in earlier podcasts. But it really does boil down to we need to make sure. That the technology protects as many people as possible and that the law protects as many people as possible and that people who are injured and it's not their fault get compensation. Um, but it is a difficult area to legislate on because there are a number of unknown factors. I think that the real issues that we need that we, we need to grapple with, and I say issues because there aren't any answers yet, we're at mm. the stage where we can identify the problem but not, not solve the answer, is... Um, First of all, consumer expectation. So there's a wonderful video that you might have been able to find online. Um, It's called, I think, if you search for Volvo self-driving crash. And Mm. what it shows is a uh, Volvo merrily driving into a group of pedestrians who all scatter like nine pins. And nobody's injured, which is why it's quite a funny video. Otherwise, it would be deeply tragic. But what's going on there is that someone has bought... um, a Volvo car with some fairly advanced driving tech in it Mm. um, called collision detection or something like that. And they want to show it off to their mates and they say, yeah, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. We're going to, you know, drive into these pedestrians and the car's going to stop by itself. And what they haven't quite realised is that they bought the model that only detects other cars, not the model that detects other cars and pedestrians. Right, yeah. And so consumer expectation is always a big issue in law because people are you judge whether someone's liable for a product with whether the product is behaving in line with what you'd reasonably expect from it. But what people expect from driverless cars is very confused. They don't know how good the tech is. And mm. is, it, is it reasonable to expect them to know how good the tech is? So I think that's, that's one real issue. And, and linked to that issue is another big legal issue, is, is failure to warn. Because it's very important that that car manufacturers warn people about how to best use this technology and about the risks involved in the technology. And normally for most cars, that's in the user manual and no one ever looks at it. Yeah. But with driverless cars, it's becoming a little bit more acute than knowing how to you know, take the 
cap off the oil or change the tyre or whatever. And it, it's really becoming very urgent indeed that people look at it. And so the way Tesla dealt with it is every time you tried to engage autopilot, a little message flashed up that said you need to make sure that you're still, I, I paraphrase, but you're yeah. still in charge of the car, you need to keep your hands uh, on the wheel, you need to still be paying attention. And so it brought it actively to your attention in that way. But I think the direction things are going to move in, um, certainly if manufacturers are prudent, I don't know whether the law will force the manufacturers to do this, mm. uh, is mandatory training. So if you want to buy this very advanced car, you have to go on a half-day course about how to use it and what the technology does and what it doesn't do. And, um, and I think that may, may go into the, um, into the driving test eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think that testing is going to be a, a very important issue. And, and another of the big issues that we haven't really got to grips with yet is contributory negligence. And this is really highlighted in the, in the Tesla crash. Should someone be still paying attention, even if the car is doing it? And, and so manufacturers are going to say, well, I told you not to rely on it. You should be paying attention all the time. It's fundamentally still your fault. It's not the technology's fault. The technology is just there mm. as a backup. And I think there's a lot of force in that point, but there's a lot of force the other way in that, you know, people are using this technology because they're entitled to rely on it and because they feel that they're entitled to rely on it because it, it generally performs very well. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're being sold a technology which they wouldn't buy if that wasn't the case, right? They're, yeah, exactly. They're being sold as a mm. thing which um, they don't require to be their uh, present driving all the time. Yeah. So it's almost an oxymoron to say that you do have to be present and driving all the time. I would say yeah, that, yeah. Well, one of, one of the real uh, problems with it is they, they've, they've done a few studies on driver behaviour, and, and this would be more mm. Nick's area than mine, uh, but I understand it's shown that if there is an emergency, you're much worse at reacting to it if the car's been self-driving beforehand um, than if you've been driving all the way along. And so you, there's this difficult balance, because in ordinary everyday driving, the cars, an automated car will probably make much less much fewer errors than you mm. but when it really comes to an emergency if it if it's been babying you by doing the driving for you you're going to find that you're a bit de-skilled and you're, you're very sluggish so real real issues there as well um it's just it's such a fascinating developing uh developing issue and and i'm almost uh, fingers crossed for a very mild accident in the uk so that we can start seeing how all this happens I was just about to say something similar mm -hmm. like I think I feel like it's one of those conversations that if I come back to you in a year's time yeah um, hopefully nothing catastrophic will have happened mm. obviously I don't want that no, to be the course, case yeah. but I imagine something will have happened and mm. only in the last couple of months we've had the Tesla and the mm. Google crashes um, and I think I, I did a talk um, about machine ethics generally last January and part of that talk was just warning people this is happening now mm. um and I guess, <laughs> um, I think the law will, will be poised to change quite radically. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a huge pile of new legislation. After all, it's, we'll be talking about the consultations. The consultations mm. um, are then going to be you know, taken into the sausage factory and out are going to come the sausages in the form of laws. And those are expected in summer 2017. So my um, book is slated, I'm supposed to get the manuscript to them in October 2017, because to a degree, there's not much mm. point starting writing until uh, sort of summer 2017, because 
everything's going to change then. Yeah. And then it's going to keep changing very quickly thereafter. But I think the real step change is going to be um, summer 2017. Yeah. Because you write a very slim version and then <laughs> write the, big, yeah, exactly. the updated... Uh, well, at the uh, moment, I'm, I'm mostly just writing writing articles on it as it right. as it comes. And, yeah. Uh, um, so on your on your second Twitter account, which is Laws of Driverless, Cars, Law of Driverless, Law of Driverless, because um, there weren't enough words for Law of Driverless. Sure, cars. you have to fit it all in that little yeah. tweet thing. Um, you also have drones listed on there as mm. well. Do you, so does this extend your kind of uh, interest in automation? Extend mm. past driverless cars? I mean, driverless cars is an easy win because it's what's kind of um, not hip, but I mean yeah. present at the moment. So, what other kind of automation do you um well it's fair to say that i know a lot about the law of driverless cars um i'm more of an enthusiast about the law of drones i'm fairly up on the basic law of it but the problem with mm. drones is you start bringing in all kinds of things like military law and privacy law and those are very different parts of the of the venn diagram of areas of law in the uk and i, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lawyer who did you know the law of combat and the law of privacy um, and sort of aerospace mm. which, uh, laws. So I'm more of an enthusiast in relation to that, but I also think that's a, a really interesting area, and that's something else that was legislated on... Well, sorry, that the Queen's speech in May um, said that they were going to bring in more legislation. And at the moment, it, it, the position in relation to drones is just fairly common sense. Mostly you can, drone, you can fly them only line of sight, um, don't put them near any planes, um, and it's fairly it's fairly straightforward. Although it also raises some interesting property law issues because mm. if you own a square of land, imagine you've got a tiny lawn in your back garden. Although well, London, I think that's a crazy dream. But imagine <laughs> imagine you've got a, a little patch of lawn. Um, in theory, in UK land law, you own that. In the famous case expressed it as all the way down to hell and all the way up to heaven, so right all the way down and then all the way up. Yeah. But that was first undermined when commercial planes started. And they said, well, actually, you've only got it up to you know, a pretty high point, after which your ownership becomes illusionary, because what are you going to do with that square of air directly above you? And so mm. that was the point where they said, fine, we can put planes above you. And there's another interesting debate at the moment about looking the other direction, looking down to hell, as it were, with fracking, because fracking... Yeah, in effect, quite a lot of the fracking manufacturers want to put a straw down at an angle and get at things under your land. Mm. And the the orthodox position is you own that land all the way down. But the they're starting to make the sort of same sort of exceptions as you do for um, for aeroplanes yep. for down there. So that's another sort of growing area. Um, yeah, I mean um, that's that's almost sounds bonkers to me because I don't know how many people dig down yeah. <laughs> in their back garden um you know 300 yeah. feet or so um which is interesting but it, i guess it exemplifies how um untested or yeah it's definitely an emerging are. area of law mm. and the law's generally quite good at keeping up with new developments i mean one of the things that people who aren't lawyers might not appreciate is that there are two different sources of law one of them is government getting together and making a statute and saying this is the law so the road traffic act is an example of one of those and that's how we get some of our law but the majority mm. of our law we get in a slightly more evolving way whereby the court looks back to the last 
time it had to decide a similar issue yeah. and tries to decide the new issue similarly to how it consistently with how it decided precedent. the old issue. Precedent, yeah, exactly. Sure. Uh, also known as the common law. Yeah. And that goes all the way back to, to Norman times and beyond. And so most of the time when I have to decide a case, I look something up and there'll have been a case that's similar back in 2012 or something and I rely on that. Mm. But every so often when I get a more obscure case, I have to go back to something from the 1700s. And you know, I have to photocopy the ridiculous law report and yep. say, well, this point hasn't come up since 1708, but here's the case when it came up. Yep. And judge, I invite you to draw an analogy between that old case and this case. And that's really what's going to be happening with driverless cars. Is It's going to be looking at the law we've already got for things going on, like brakes failing, that sort of mm. thing, and, and then just applying them by analogy. So we've got a very good legal system for dealing with it, but the first few cases are going to be expensive. And right. uh, and then once you once you've got a handful of cases decided, everyone will be able to locate themselves in relation to those cases, and there'll be much less litigation from that point. But there there will initially be a flurry of litigation. It's almost inevitable. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't really know what else to say about that, um, other than um, we'll wait and see till that happens. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things I was just thinking about just then um, was. Um, I don't know if you saw that there's been a flurry of articles uh, which are kind of scaremongering a certain amount to do with driverless cars and the headlines generally been would you buy a car which would kill you mm. um, which is to do with the kind of the programming behind um, if a car got itself into a specific situation where you had to make a choice um, so um, for example you're going over a bridge and there's a a bus full of children and you could either crash into the bus because it's not got time to, to mm. stop maybe um, or it can drive off the bridge mm. uh, and save the bus full of children and, and maybe damage the people in the car um, and people think that this is going to well in the articles it's mainly to do with um, people's buying power and whether they're going to mm. buy into this these cars because of these uh, maybe kind of um, black box sort of mm. scenarios where you're not sure what the car's going to do or uh, maybe the manufacturer has stipulated the car will do something. Um, how do you mm. feel about all this kind of... Well, I, I think that the first point to make is that that scenario in practice is vanishingly rare. Right. And I've never encountered it driving and I'm not aware of it ever having happened in quite those terms, in the history of human driving, because sure. there would be litigation about it if, if there was. Yeah. So we're worrying about something in relation to computers when we don't worry about it in relation to people. Now, it's easy to understand yeah. why we're worried about it. It's because we have to program it in in, in advance, whereas otherwise, with humans, you make the decision yeah. in the heat of the moment. Well, we don't, and um, that's the technology bit. We don't mm. actually have to program it in advance, um, which is uh, also worrying. Mm. Yeah, I think you, you talked about neural nets with um, with Nick. And with uh, Nick and, and probably everyone, to be honest, mm. um, with um, Callum a bit as well, mm. um, to his books. Um, yeah, so, I mean, f on that side of things, the idea that the cars have enough time to make decisions is um, uh, it's just not the case, right? Mm. So you can't simulate all the possible uh, eventualities. Mm. It just hasn't got the computing power to do that. And we, and we probably never will. Because um, you imagine mm. that any physical motion 
in any direction mm. could result in any number of different outcomes. Mm. Well, <laughs> I mean, just, just to pick this up, I, I don't think that's something that's particularly well appreciated on the, the legal side of things, because we're, yeah. we're still wrangling with the, let's say you have to program mm. that decision in. So if, if it's not it, a decision, it's, you it's impossible. It. it is literally mm. impossible to program that in. So, um, for example, if, if you had the, the stupid example that I made about mm. the, the bus and, and the children and the bridge, mm. um, you're right. Like, are we going to have all these scenarios in a big database somewhere? Mm. And it goes, this is the scenario I'm in as car A. Yeah. I'm going to make this decision because I've been told to do that. Um, we just don't have a big enough database for all the scenarios. Mm. Okay. It's an easy way to think about it. So it's just not possible. Um, so how are we going to do it? Or how are people doing it? Um, and the real answer to that is uh, they're using neural nets. Mm. Um, so they're using basically clever math mm. to iteratively um, make a best fit for any potential situation. Mm. So an example of this is if you show um, a neural net, which is programmed to look at images, mm. a face, and you say, this is a face, the next face you show it, it will try, it will go, compared to the last one, is this a face? Mm. And it will probably go, I don't know. Mm. You show it two million faces. Yeah. I know that's how they're programming you know? um, off-road driverless cars at the moment, by showing right. them lots of photos of landscapes. And yeah, gradually exactly. Uh, um, but you can see that this process doesn't need mm. to happen with um, video, uh, uh, visual information. It can happen with anything. Yeah. So if you turn left down this street, for example, and you do that many, many times, or in a certain uh, road layout, it will mm. know that it's able to do that that time, it's probably able to do it this time, mm. for example. Or if the, if the traffic lights are red, you don't even need to mm. tell it traffic lights need to be red and you need to stop. You don't need to tell it. You just have to do it, enact it a couple of times, and it will remember. We will kind of weight it as a good mm. thing to do, basically. And that's, um, that's part of how these things are being operated. Okay. Well, in terms of people not being prepared to drive a car that might might happen to choose to to kill them rather than mm. um, pedestrians. Personally, I'm very relaxed about that. I, I think yeah. that it's clearly right and proper that it should prioritise the number of lives over any sort of bizarre machine loyalty to its own particular occupant. Mm -hmm. I, I think you have more... But, but people yeah. have to make... These, um, people have to know that that's the case, I guess. Mm. You know when you're saying when you... Uh, maybe having a test um, to take one of these cars out. I think mm. I guess that's kind of part of the advertisement of the car. Like this isn't this isn't your car almost. Mm. You know this isn't about um, it's not about your mm. safety. It's about everyone's safety. Mm. But we again, I'm not so up on the technology. But my yeah. understanding is that we already trade off things like that fairly frequently in relation to the design of the front of the car mm. because there's a tension between designing it to make pedestrians bounce off rather than get sucked underneath and the protection of the occupant and mm. and, and, and the air and, and speed and all that sort of stuff as exactly. well, you know, and making it faster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, you're, you're so much more likely to kill someone at 40 rather than 30, but mm. ultimately, you know, you've got to be able to get somewhere and, and there are these sort of trade-offs. So I don't think it's, it's that alien a trade-off. And I, frankly, I'd be more worried if someone tried to sell me a car 
and they said this will definitely protect you at all costs. I think yeah. that would be more problematic. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what the articles were, tra- were fear-mongering, mm. the fact that it's explicitly pointing out that fact yeah. and making um, it a thing, whereas you make that decision every time you go in a taxi, for example. Yeah. You know, you make these decisions every day based on the information you have, and maybe we just haven't got enough information yet mm. about um, the safety of these machines. Yeah, and I think looking looking into the longer term, that will be, in terms of safety, that's one of the really interesting things about driverless cars, because most of the time, I'm a lawyer, people pay me for my time, most of the time I'm looking at very imminent problems, but in the in the very distant future, we might not need road um, traffic insurance at all, because as the technology gets better and better and safer and safer, we might reach a point where driving a car or being in a car is no more or less dangerous than walking down the street. And we don't have insurance for walking down the street. Mm-hmm. The reason why the law has picked out driving as this one activity that's so dangerous that you must be forced to have insurance is because it's the most dangerous thing that most of us ever do. And so if the technology reaches the point that it's no longer that dangerous, then, then we may not need um, insurance at all. But that's very, very far future because we, it would have to be all driverless cars. You wouldn't have this yeah. mix of classic cars and, and so on. Yeah, um, I guess it's more of a sort of sci-fi point than a practical one. Yeah, I mean, uh, I disagree. I think if you if you took uh, a new city, if you made a new Milton Keynes mm. or something, and you just made the stipulation that there was going to be a lane on all roads which was closed off, which was for driverless cars, then mm. quite quickly yeah. we can make this happen. You know. Yeah. Um, I think. And I think insurance will get more expensive. For, as it, as driving becomes more of a hobby, insurance will get mm. more and more expensive for people. And you, you'll have to make the choice at some point whether you keep... And, and we're talking probably 50 years in the future, but you'll have to make the point, the choice whether you keep paying for insurance for you to drive. A little bit like whether you pay to have your partner who's had several crashes and is quite expensive to insure on your car. You'll have to decide whether to insure yourself to drive your own car or just let the, your car... Stuff, yeah. yeah, I think uh, what you said earlier. I would love to just get taken with the car and then go on a track and, and yeah. feel like I'm actually driving um, and and be driving with speed and and things like that instead of driving the motorway, you know, in a gridlock or whatever. It's not yeah. exciting, is it? Um, so we're kind of getting to the end, I guess. Um, are is there anything that you're excited about in the in the near future or that scares you to do with um all that we've talked about so far with ai and cars and things i think the thing that scares me most is the technology is great but the human element of the technology is so intrinsically flawed um so we know there's been the google crash Mm -hmm. in february uh, of this year and then there's been the fatal tesla crash in May this year. And what's been less reported is there was also a non-fatal Tesla crash in July this year. Mm. And what happened in that crash is that someone took a Tesla that explicitly warned the technology was only supposed to be used in roads with, um, oh, what's it called, the central reservation. Um, okay. And yeah. they, they took the car and they put it on an unfenced mountain road. And then they took their hands off the steering wheel, which is also what the, the technology tells you not to do. So they've just completely ignored two very large bits of the instruction manual. And the poor car, it it beeped this guy several times to say, please take back control. I'm not supposed to be driving right now. You're supposed Mm. to be driving right now. And he ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. And eventually it had a relatively minor collision with the fence. 
And that's the sort of thing I find depressing because the technology is there, but people's usage of technology is lagging very far behind. And that's what I, what my big fear is, is that yeah. the, the people will let the technology down in a way. Yeah, that's, um, that is definitely the case, I think. Um, and what excites you, I guess? Just legally how much there is to work out. So I'm a massive, being a massive geek, I think it's really exciting times for this technology, but it's also really exciting times for insurance law and really exciting times for product liability law. And um, I can't wait until uh, summer um, 2017 where I really start to get stuck into this book. Yeah, I mean, it sounds uh, great. I don't think I've seen anything like that so far um, available. So, yeah, I think it would be great to get at the forefront. I think I personally could talk to you about this all day, <laughs> um, but I'm afraid we're going to cut it there. Uh, so thanks very much, Lucy, for your, all your time, your knowledge and your expertise. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cool. Thanks very much.